0: Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. If we took a poll and asked for your favorite romance story, you might suggest, like, Pride and Prejudice, maybe, or like, I don't don't know, Bridget Jones or The Notebook or La La Land or something like that. Uh, What you probably wouldn't suggest is the story of Ruth and Boaz in the Book of Ruth. And the reason I say that is because it's actually become kind of common for Christian writers to treat the Book of Ruth as a romance story. One Christian blogger that I came across said that before there was Tristan and Isolde, before Romeo and Juliet, and even before Mr. Darcy and Miss Elizabeth of Pride and Prejudice, there were Boaz and Ruth. Isn't that romantic? Isn't that lovely? So the idea goes like this. It's that the idea goes that the Book of Ruth is a romance story that tells about how after years of hardship and longing and searching, Ruth and Boaz finally come together and each of them finds the one in the most unlikely place. And you know, it seems to me if this were a romance, we would see from the the top of the story, what a what a catch Ruth is, you know what a what a great uh, find she is. She's just somebody who's waiting to be discovered, and she's beautiful and she's desirable, and some lucky guy out there is going to get her, uh, and she's just waiting for that, you know. That's what if, if this were a romance, that's what we would see. Of course, that's not how Ruth is introduced to us, and if it were a romance, we would see Boaz as something of a project, you know? He's this workaholic, he works too hard, he's an, all invested in in his career and he doesn't take time for people and he's just, you know, he's too busy to notice people. And of course, that's not how we're introduced to Boaz. And, and if this were a romance, when we meet Naomi, she'd provide like the comic relief. She'd be like this hilarious, you know, overbearing mother-in-law in the story. And of course, that's not, who she is she is actually barely hanging on after having suffered for many many years that's not to say that this isn't a love story there's actually a great deal of love in this story but it's not mainly a romance and i want to be clear about that off the top and the reason we're talking about it this week is because this week we begin a study of the book of ruth the study is called ruth there is a redeemer and we're going to be in the book of ruth from now until easter And today's goal really is just to orient us to what to expect in the book of Ruth. I would love if we can kind of enter into the world that Ruth inhabits and and see life and see the world through her eyes. The question I'm really asking today is, what would it take to make us choose to go back to the place that we left for a better life? So I think it's going to help if we can just make some observations about Ruth's context as we begin here. So a couple of points here about Ruth's context. First of all, it's important to observe Ruth lives at the time of the judges. This is not a good time in Israel's history. They've just moved into the Promised Land. They're beginning to settle and colonize it. And it's a time when uh, there was no king in Israel. In fact, the constant refrain in the book of Judges is that there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. So there's no government yet there's no monarchy yet okay Um, there are no like laws that everybody agrees on and there's no um like there's no there's no human rights for people to claim there's no police that you can call when things are bad what you've got is people who within those within the tribal lands you've got people who have gathered into little fortified city-states and each of those city-states is ruled by a powerful warlord so Jericho is one maybe and like Bethlehem is another one and and, Jer- and uh, Jerusalem is another one and, and, and on and on and each of them is, ru- is ruled by uh, a powerful like military uh, chieftain or a warlord okay And if you don't know what that's like, think about think of like the Godfather movies, okay You've got uh, a powerful leader, a powerful Godfather and the, the, the families under his care, they pledge their loyalty to the Godfather. Now, in, in this day, in this context, what that look, looks like is your loyalty belongs to that, you know, warlord. And, you're, you know, perhaps you promise a son for his army. Perhaps your uh, your family has been particularly successful. And so if you're wealthy, you don't give up a son. What you do is you share a portion of your wealth in exchange for his protection. And so there's no welfare system, right? Like if you're starving... You can't apply to the government and have them step in and, and help you out. You've got you've got to throw yourself at the mercy of these warlords. There's no banks, you can't get a loan. You, you de- you're dependent on your local warlord. And and so if you find yourself in a place where you can't pay your warlord, and if you don't have a son to offer, well, maybe you might offer up one of your daughters. Well, that's what it's like to live in the time of the judges. And as hard as that is, at least you've got some, a place that's safe, you know, at least you've got some protection, at least you have uh, some land, you know, at least you've got some hope that there might be future generations of your family line. And as, as hard as that is, how bad do things have to get for you to consider leaving that behind? Well, that's what we're talking about when we say that Ruth lived at the time of the judges. Uh, and another thing that we need to understand about this time is that it's also the time of patriarchy. It's a time of just very deeply entrenched patriarchy, and except they didn't realize that it was patriarchy at the time. Nobody at the time of Ruth is using the language of patriarchy. They didn't call it that. They just called it Sunday through Saturday. Like this is just life. This is just normal. And I think in some ways it's kind of hard for us to appreciate what it's like to be a woman in ancient times. There's no feminism, and there are no feminists. Okay, gender equality, it's not a thing. And so when relationships form, like, there's no dating. It's not like they met at Bible camp and they started exchanging notes or they, you know, somebody introduced them at a, at a party or something like that. Not at all. There's no Christian mingle or anything like that, okay? The way it works is when you were a little girl and before you had any interest in boys, your parents made a deal with another family that they thought would improve your lot And so they promised you to another family's son, and if that arrangement works out, that man is able to produce crops on the land, you're able to give birth to sons, your family becomes wealthy and successful, and your family survives and multiplies. And that's the best that you could hope for, but it all depends on you giving birth to sons, okay? Sons are the hope and the future of your family line. That's what it means to live in the patriarchy. One author who's done quite a bit of work on the context and culture around the Book of Ruth, her name is Carolyn Custis James, she says, Under patriarchy, women have no independent legal rights and no voice. Rights and protections that women in the West naturally assumed are completely absent for Naomi and her daughters-in-law. Anyone can abuse them with impunity since there is no male to defend them against an assailant. The future is frightening, promising only poverty and vulnerability and misery. And so that's where our story begins. At the end of verse 7, we've got three widows in a patriarchal culture trying to survive at a time when absolutely everybody does what, what seems right in their own eyes. And again, we need to ask, if that were your context... Okay, if that's the world you lived in, what would it take to make you choose to go back to the place that you left for hope of a better life? Okay, what would it take to make you go back to the place you left because you hoped for a better life somewhere else? Well, let's enter the story now and see how things unfold for Naomi and her family. Uh, if you've got your Bible with you, I'll invite you to open it up. We're going to begin right at verse 1. We're going to work verse by verse up to Verse 7. My version is the Christian Standard Bible. If yours is a little different, that's fine. But again, the story begins during the time of the judges, and there was a famine in the land, in uh, the ancestral home of Elimelech and Naomi in Bethlehem. And what's ironic about that is that Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. So this city-state, Bethlehem, uh, the house of bread, now it has no food. And it doesn't matter... It doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter how how good a farmer you are, famine means you can't change it. You can't fix that. And that's why the text says that the man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. Now, it's important that they land, end up in the land of Moab. Like that was a big decision for them to leave Bethlehem, their ancestral home, leave the promised land and end up in Moab of all places. Nobody in Moab is praying to the God of Israel. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, and and so Elimelech understands there is some risk in going there. He doesn't have the same protections in Moab that he has in Bethlehem. But he's, he's going in uh, telling Naomi and the boys, well, it's only for a while. You know, it's just till the famine is over. Except that a while turns into 10 years. Well, then what happened? So let's continue uh, reading in the text. The names of his two sons were Melon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Verse 3 Naomi's husband Elimelech died, and she was left with her two sons. Well, Elimelech died. What does that even mean how can we how can we possibly imagine what it means to be a widow in this culture she's alone now with her two sons she's an Israelite living in Moab far from their far from their ancestral home in a place where they can inherit nothing they have no uh, right to expect any kindness or, or hospitality from any of their neighbors because they're Israelites what hope does Naomi have as a widow in Moab? Well, one little bit of hope is this legal arrangement uh, called a leveret marriage, which is part of God's law. The idea here is that if an Israelite husband dies and there's, there's no kids, there's no one to inherit, uh, and it's, look, it's, it's, it's likely that the family line will end, well, what can happen is that husband who died, if he has a brother or if he's got another relative nearby, he has the option he can marry the the widow, right? So the man's brother can step in and he can marry the widow. He can fulfill the husband's obligations by giving her a son and hopefully preserve the family line and not lose the family land. So that's what that's what we mean by a leveret marriage. That's that's going to be relevant a little bit later in the story, but that's one little bit of hope that maybe Naomi can hang on to. The problem is, Elimelech doesn't die in Bethlehem, where there may be some relatives nearby. They're in Moab. There's no family here. Well, what what happens next? So, verse 4, Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. Uh, after they lived in Moab about 10 years, I'll just pause there for a second, we need to pay attention to the fact that the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi married Moabite women. Like, that's a that's actually a big deal in the story, because the Moabites, as we've said, they are not part of God's people, they, they worship foreign gods, they're actually, even worse, they are the product of incest. Now, the Bible makes it pretty clear, going back to Genesis 19, there's the story Of Abraham's relative named Lot and Lot has two daughters okay so these two daughters they've they've never married they've never had children yet and they're getting older and they're worried uh, that there's a shortage of men around and and they may never marry and they may never never have children what are we gonna do and they actually actually hatch a plan to get their father Lot to get him drunk and to sleep with him and to try and conceive children with their father okay so uh, in fact, in Genesis chapter 19, verses 36 and 37, we read that both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. And what it seems like the authors of Scripture here want us to understand is that the Moabites are descendants of incest. Like part of the reason why they have no place in Israel, they have no part in the inheritance of God's people, is because they are the offspring of this, this uh, like shameful, incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. And the, the Moabite land, that's where Elimelech and Naomi, that's where they were sojourners, okay? Uh, this, this is the land where they settled. But not only that, but their sons married into that family line. They, fam- they married like, women who were descendants of that incestuous relationship. That's what the the text wants us to understand here. Ruth and Orpah are Moabite women. Well, the text goes on. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Now now her sons have died? Not only her husband, now her two sons, Malon and Kilian. After 10 years, they've had no children with Ruth and Orpah. They are, are no more successful in Moab than they were when they arrived. Their father is gone, and with them has died any hope of a future. There's, there's like, no hope left. Like, Naomi is the wife of a dead husband. She's the mother of two dead sons. She's got these two daughters-in-law uh, hanging off her who are Moabites, and not Israelites. Uh, and even though they're with her, like, even though... You know, she can kind of count those women as assets. What the text wants to emphasize is is all that's missing for Naomi. Because it doesn't tell us that Naomi was left with Ruth and Orpah. What it tells us in verse 5, it emphasizes that Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. That's where we are at the end of verse 5. And one commentator said that within the context of the ancient patriarchal culture, the day they buried Malon and Killian. They essentially buried Naomi too. Now past childbearing years, Naomi has no future and no hope. Do you hear that? No future and no hope. Well, what options has she got? Well, not many. I mean, she could, she might hire herself out as a laborer. That's one option. Option two, she hires herself out as a prostitute. Option three, she begs for money. She's a laborer, she's a prostitute, or she's a beggar. Those are her three options, it seems, uh, at the end of verse 5. What happens next? Verse 6 says, She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. So there's rumors. She's She's hearing rumors in the land of Moab that way over in Judah, way over in Bethlehem, God is looking after his people, he's paying attention to his people's need, and they have food. And as an Israelite, maybe, just maybe, if Naomi and her daughters in law end up there, maybe they'll share some of their food with her. Just maybe. And for Naomi, you know, this is a return home, there is that slight glimmer of hope. Because returning to Judah, returning to Bethlehem, that's her homeland. But it's not the homeland of Ruth and Orpah. For Ruth and Orpah, Moab is home. They've never left. And I wonder what Ruth and Orpah's parents are feeling as as they are discussing this idea with Naomi. I I wonder how they feel about the idea of saying goodbye to their daughters as they leave for Bethlehem in the land of the God of the Israelites. I wonder how, how they feel about that. And I wonder if Naomi is ready for what's coming. Because on the one hand, Naomi has to know that Bethlehem is her best chance at survival. Like, that is that is her only hope. On the other hand, she is probably not expecting a warm welcome. You know, I, I imagine that when she arrives there, she's going to meet up with some of the neighbors that she left behind 10 years ago, and they're not going to be very kind and hospitable to her. And instead of, hey, welcome back, Naomi, it might be, oh, Naomi. Remember remember when you left us 10 years ago and you ended up in the, the land of Moab? Remember they died? Your husband and your two sons died? Well, what did you think would happen? Of course your husband died. Of course your sons died. You got exactly what you deserve, Naomi. And now you are back? Now you're back and you've brought a couple of Moabite women with you. Hmm. Seems like you haven't learned anything, Naomi. Do you expect us to welcome you back with open arms? Maybe... Maybe that's what Naomi's preparing herself for. Well, at the end of the passage, what we read in verse 7 is, She left the place she had been living and accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and traveled along the road, leading back to the land of Judah. That's where we end. On the road, on the way back to the land of Judah. That's the story so far. And when we sort of step back and we reflect on what Naomi has suffered uh, I'm not surprised that that many commentators have actually compared Naomi to another biblical sufferer who you might be familiar with, and his name is Job. People look at the ways that Job has suffered, and they look at the ways that Naomi suffered in this story, and they say, those are parallel. One of those commentators is Carolyn Custis James, who I quoted earlier, but what she says is that both sufferers' losses are catastrophic. Job loses his livestock, his servants, his children, and his health. Naomi endures famine, the life of a refugee, and the deaths of her husband and both her sons. It is a total wipeout for both sufferers, the only difference being that Job, as a man in a patriarchal culture, can eventually begin again. Not so Naomi, who, as a postmenopausal widow, is finished. She's finished. That's where we find Naomi at the end of verse 7. You know, right now in Bangladesh, there is a refugee camp, and it's home to more than 900,000 Rohingya Muslims, and they're there because they fled uh, religious persecution in Myanmar, they fled genocide in in Myanmar, and and when they've arrived in the refugee camp, what they've found is all kinds of problems, like disease and malnutrition, and there's rampant drug use, there's rampant gang violence, and... um, it's not quite the time of the judges, but, it, but it's almost that bad. Like during the daytime, some of the kids are lucky enough to attend school if they could, have, if they could find a spot. And, and, and the girls, the girls go into hiding during the day because of the risk of being kidnapped and being trafficked into prostitution. So many of the girls in the refugee camp are hiding. Think of this. There's no fair system within the refugee camp for distributing water and food and medicine. Most of the people in the refugee camp have no identification. They don't even exist on paper. That's what it's like in the refugee camp. And, and as awful as that sounds, they stay because that's better than life in Myanmar. This is relief relief. And, it, and again, we should ask, how bad must things have been for them in Myanmar? Like how, how bad must things have been for them to leave that for this? And how much worse would things have to get in the refugee camp in Bangladesh for, for these refugees to choose to go back? What would have to happen? What would it take to make them choose to leave the refugee camp and go back to Myanmar. Well, that's where these women find themselves. You know, since ancient times, the church calendar has set aside the season uh, just before Easter for a period called Lent. It's, uh, it starts on Ash Wednesday and it lasts six weeks. And it's modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert. And uh, for him, it was a time of, of prayer and self-denial and, and resisting temptation and, and really waiting on God. And in the same way, through Lent, followers of Jesus, uh, t- we take up a fast. We fast from things like, maybe you've chosen in the past, you've chosen alcohol or chocolate or television or social media. Things that are not necessarily sinful in themselves, but you chose to set these things aside for, for the period of Lent and use the, that time instead in order to cultivate your relationship with God. And I think that's a really helpful practice. I think that's a really good idea that I I highly would recommend for your practice of Lent. But whether you fast from something or not, what Lent is about is self-denial. It's about fighting temptation. Lent is when we take up our crosses and we wait for our Redeemer. Okay? That's what Lent is. Lent is about recognizing the world is broken. And you know what? It's our fault. The world is broken and we wait for a better one and we work for it. And Lent says someday there's gonna be a reversal. Someday someone will come who can undo all of the things that have gone wrong. There is a Redeemer and soon enough he is gonna come and he will redeem all of this. And so in some ways the book of Ruth is actually like the perfect Lenten study. Because the book of Ruth is a journey into what it looks like for the faithful to wait and to hope and to work for a world that's better than the world that we find ourselves in. See, in in Ruth, we're going to meet a woman who denies herself and works hard and waits and practices radical faithfulness and radical generosity and radical love and, and and so our goal in this series is to see life through that woman's eyes, to really feel what it's like to have door after door closed in our faces and still to keep hoping and working and waiting for that new world, waiting for things to change, waiting for our Redeemer. That's why we're doing this study. Now, of course, you and I know we have an advantage over Naomi and Ruth and Orpah in the sense that we live on this side of the cross. We know who that Redeemer is, right? We know who the story looks forward to. But imagine if we didn't. Imagine if Naomi's story were our story, What if we were the refugees, and instead of blessings like like a home, and a a community, and friends, and a, a church, and a city, and protections, and rights, and possessions. Imagine if all that we had going for us was just like the tiniest bit of hope that we might not starve. The question we are asking today is, what would have to happen to send you back to the place you started? Like, what, could, what, would ha- what would it take to send you back to your Bethlehem? What would it take to make us choose to go back to the place that we left in order to find a better life somewhere else? Because I'll tell you what it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be romance. Romance alone isn't enough to take you back to the place you left for a chance at a better life. Of course not. Not when you're starving. Not when your husband's died. Not when your son's died. Not when your daughters-in-law are Moabites and you've spent the last 10 years in Moabite lands. What it takes is hope. Just a little hope. And that's what these women have going for them. Right now, all they've got is just the tiniest bit of hope. Because what they do is, is, Naomi can look at door number one and door number two and Naomi can say, behind door number one is Moab, staying in Moab. And if we stay here, it's nothing but misery. And if we go through door number two, we go, we end up in Bethlehem. And there's misery there too for us. But at least we might not starve. Like at least through door number two, we might eat. And that is just the tiniest bit of hope. What she had was the rumor in verse six. Naomi had heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. That's all she's got to hold on to. That's not a promise. That's not it's that's just a possibility. That's just the faintest glimmer of hope. And you know, just just maybe, just maybe things will end up not so terrible if we go through door number two. Now, if she does, I'm sure Naomi can hear the voice of judgment. That just says to her, yeah, but Naomi, God came to the aid of his people, but you're not his people anymore. You walked away from that, remember? You left the land, remember? You're a widow and you have no sons now, remember? What makes you think you're going to come back now and you're going to burden us with these two extra Moabite mouths to feed? What makes you think we're going to roll out the red carpet for you? We can imagine Naomi's shame we we know we know that she knows what she's getting herself into we know that she must feel ashamed and humiliated and we can almost hear how she'd respond she'd say I know I know that I left I know that I failed my husband I couldn't keep him alive I know that I failed my sons I couldn't save them I know that I failed my people by letting my sons marry outside the faith. I know, I know, I'm a terrible Israelite and I don't deserve to be here, I know. But I heard that the Lord has come to the aid of his people and right now that's all I've got. All my hope is in that. And and we won't be a burden on you. We won't cause trouble. All we're asking is that if you could only find it in your heart, have mercy, let us come home and don't send us away. That's hope. That's hope. Now, what Naomi maybe doesn't realize is that's actually, that kind of hope, that kind of faith, that's that's the kind of prayer that actually saves you. That's the kind of prayer that if it's sincere, it actually connects you with God through Jesus. You know, the best thing that Naomi can imagine is that she and her daughter's-in-law might not starve. Like that, the most she can hope for is that just maybe some of her neighbors might share some grain and might not chase her off the land. That's like the best she could imagine and hope for. She wouldn't dare ask for more than that. Okay? And we need to understand as this story begins, Naomi's coming back to the promised land and she's not asking for a husband. She's not asking for a title or a land or a community. She's not asking for, for any, uh, an income. She's not asking to have more children. She doesn't, she's not expecting to be loved and welcomed and accepted. She's not expecting to be given a place at anybody's table. Because as far as Naomi is concerned, that would be crazy. All she's asking for is a little mercy. Could you imagine having so little hope? that the most you can put together to ask for is is mercy? I I think if we could reach Naomi, if if we could speak to her, what we would say is, oh, Naomi, if, if you only knew, if you only knew that the very best that you hope for is the very least of what God wants to bless you with. He is good and he is kind and generous and he has come to the aid of his people. Just like you heard, it's true. God has come to the aid of his people, but not just by providing food, but in a more glorious, ultimate sense. He has come to the aid of his people by providing a redeemer. That's what we want to tell you, Naomi. But of course, we can't, because Naomi's a character in an ancient story. We can't tell them. Maybe there are some people in our lives that we can tell. Maybe there are some neighbors in our lives who can't possibly believe that there is a Redeemer because that idea is just too good to be true. Maybe the ones who need to hear are some of the immigrants and refugees in our city who've made a home in our neighborhoods who have almost no community and just need to know that there is a Redeemer, that God has come to the aid of his people. Maybe, Maybe it's us, though. Maybe we're the ones who need to be reminded that there is a Redeemer. Whatever the case, I would like to end like this. Each week in this series, I'm going to share some questions that I I hope we can take with us so that we can kind of keep the conversation going. So here are the take-it-home questions for this week. The the first question is for a neighbor. Think of this like a conversation starter. You might initiate a conversation with your neighbor using this. The the question is, what brought your family here? Like, what, what brought them here? Did they find what they hoped for? Question number two is a question for you. So think of something that you're waiting and hoping for God to do. What difference does it make to know that the one that Naomi only hoped for is the one that you know and have experienced? What difference does it make in your life for your hoping and for your waiting? What difference does it make to know that the one that Naomi only hoped for, only could dream about, is the one that you know and has already loved you and redeemed you. What difference does that make? That's the question for you. And now finally, a question for us. Who are the Naomi's around us who need to hear that their story isn't over and that there's a Redeemer? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.